Hey everybody, it is uh, good to be back with you again for another episode of uh, Devotions here. Thinking about the names of Jesus along with all of you from the Avery County Prayer Group. My name again is Michael McKee. I'm the pastor at Newland Presbyterian Church. And I want to begin just by saying thank you for all of the ways that you have been uh, praying, lifting up our county and our churches and um, the, our friends and neighbors in the last couple months. Um, I'm also grateful for the ways that you continue to engage God's Word and the Scriptures, seeking out, uh, seeking to know Jesus in a deeper way, trying to understand um, who He is in light of the names that have been used to describe His person and His work in both the New and in the Old Testaments. Uh, Today, we are going to, or this evening, I guess, we are going to take a look at Jesus uh, as he is called in the New Testament by Paul. Jesus as the second Adam, right? Adam in Genesis, Adam the first uh, man created by God. Um, G, uh, Adam as, as the man who, who is formed of the dust of the ground. The, the earth man is a good way to, de, to define or describe the Hebrew here. And so um, God takes the dirt of the ground and forms him into a man and breathes, breathes life into the man and he becomes a living creature. He's created by God. He's given stewardship over creation. Um, and God makes a helper fit for him and from his side draws uh, a woman, Eve, um, the mother of all living. So Adam and Eve are created by God in God's image together, male and female, humanity is made in the image of God. And so that's Adam, but Jesus is called the second Adam in the New Testament by Paul. We're going we're gonna to get to that in a minute. Before we do, here's, here's basically what we're going to cover. Um, we're going to look at two ancient ways of reading the Bible. And this is all kind of building up so that we can understand finally what is meant uh, in Romans chapter 5. Um, we're going to look at two ancient ways of reading the Bible. We're going to look at some examples of how we might read in a similar way that will help us understand a teaching from a guy named Ephraim the Syrian uh, who wrote these amazing hymns for the church and absolutely stunning. Google him. Look, at, look him up if you've never heard of him. Wrote these amazing hymns with uh, incredible insight into the Bible. And he's going to help us understand how Jesus is the second Adam. Okay, so uh, let's get started. Two ancient ways of reading the Scripture. Okay, first up, uh, a four-part method. This is just how the church has done it for centuries. And maybe it's something new for you. I feel like we probably, um, in the last hundred years... 200 years have done a, a bad job continuing many of the traditions uh, that actually are very, very valuable and help, will help us and help you in your spiritual life. So here's, here's one really powerful way that I have um, encountered a way to read the Bible. So uh, we've got some Latin words going here. Uh, don't let that throw you off. Four parts. Uh, lectio is the first one. It simply means read. You read. You read the passage, right? The second part is meditatio. That means to meditate. 
to think deeply about the passage. If you want to jot these down uh, or take a screenshot later, I welcome you to kind of keep these notes. The third part is oratio, which is to speak or to pray. You never read the Bible alone. You read the Bible in the company of the Holy Spirit, of the living God. And so as you're trying to understand what the passage says, as you think deeply about it, um, you also want to ask God, you know, God, what do you want me to know and understand here uh, as I read and as I study? And then the fourth part is contemplatio, which means to, to contemplate. You can pick up on that word. But it also has and, and kind of connotes the sense of, of listening. So if we ask God here to help us understand, therefore we need to, we need to listen to what he has to say. Um, so Lekia, read the passage. Secondly, I want you to meditate on it, to think deeply, to, to begin drawing connections to other parts of the Bible, other stories that you know, other teachings that you're familiar with. How does this connect to the whole of the scriptures. And then uh, begin, even with all that kind of in your mind and in your heart, to ask God, okay, what, what are you saying to me as I'm reading here? And how can I respond? Uh, and finally, uh, you listen. You listen for God's answer there. This is just a, a very basic and straightforward way that the church has read the scriptures for centuries. Um, but I'm going to take you to an and we'll see some connections here, but I want to take you to even an older way, and this might be helpful too. There's a guy named Origen of Alexandria, second century church father. He was, there are five teachings of his which were deemed heretical, which isn't good, but his way, he's an absolute genius and brilliant man, and many of the orthodox teachers and church fathers who come later and formalize a lot of the doctrines of the church learned a tremendous amount and owe a huge debt of gratitude basically to Origen's way of reading the Bible. He helps us kind of go uh, deeper in it. And here's what Origen had to say about, about reading the scriptures. This is the way he did it. Um, and I'll just draw this up here. It, the three-part method, and each of them correspond to the human body, to the human person, right? So I'll erase this in a minute, so you might want to shut it down. But um, so I'm just going to draw a person here, and we'll make them we'll make them happy. Uh, here it is, three parts. The first level of reading the scripture is read on what Origen said, the level of the body, or the level of the flesh, by which he meant. Seek out the literal sense of the word, or the, of the scripture. What does it literally mean? Who are the people involved? When did it take place? What are the basic events that happen along the way? Uh, what, what's, the, the base, what's the essence of the teaching that's being communicated? What are the words used? What, just the, the literal level. And that's important. He emphasized this. It's significant. I think um, many times, though, we, maybe we'll just stop there. And he wanted us to go a bit further. The second level is the level of the soul. And Origen equated this with the moral level. So when you read, 
what literally happens, that's the love of the flesh. But secondly, okay, what, what do I learn here about right and wrong? Uh, what do I learn here about the way that God has ordered things and made them to be? And how can I begin to um, go deeper in my understanding of what God desires from my actions and from my heart and from my thoughts? Uh, what, is, what is God wanting uh, in, a, in a moral sense? You can think of a number of great locations in the scriptures that maybe really emphasize or highlight this. The Ten Commandments you know, in, in Exodus in Deuteronomy. Uh, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Moses, and maybe we're getting into what we're talking about a little bit, but Moses received the Ten Commandments atop the mountain. Um, and then in Matthew, uh, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. But this time he's not receiving the law, he's giving it. So I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And he takes us even further beyond our outward actions and into the um, desires and attitudes of our heart. So you can already begin to see some connections and overlap that we're going to get to in just a second. Um, so the, the love of the body is the literal level. The level of the soul is the moral level, right and wrong. So you can ask yourself um, as you're reading a passage, okay, what does God want from me? The third level, though, is kind of the pinnacle of reading the Scripture. This is where we hope to go, but we can't get there without the help of the Holy Spirit. But it corresponds, if you're thinking about how can I remember this, it corresponds with the level of the human spirit. And it is the, this is the level at which we see Jesus Christ in, in the whole entirety of the Scripture. I'm going to put, see Jesus. See Jesus. Okay. So, um, after Christ's resurrection, he walks with the two disciples on the way, the road to Emmaus, right? And then he begins telling them and explaining to them throughout the scriptures everything that pertains to him. Uh, he also comes back. There are other places where uh, the scriptures tell us about Jesus explaining how the scriptures point to him, um, uh, direct us to him, kind of tell us about him. And when he's using the word scriptures, he, the New Testament doesn't exist. The Old Testament is what we're talking about. And so uh, I, I'm giving you both of these methods uh, so that maybe, you know, as you read a passage, well, you can say, as you begin to meditate on it, how does this connect with those three levels? Um, you can ask God, maybe in each one of those categories, okay, what do you want me to know literally? What do I really need to remember about who's involved in this story and who they are and who their families are and how um, the events of their life in this narrative um, contain your truth, God? And then as you do that, you can also begin to say, as you're meditating or as you're praying aloud to God, asking Him to help you understand the passage, what do you want me to do? What's right and wrong? How can I see in Jacob's heel-grabbing, manipulative ways, ways actually not to be? Or as I study the life of David, I can see really good things, Lord, but I also see the fullness of our fallenness as human beings. What do you want me to know about right and wrong? And finally, most importantly, where can I meet Jesus in this text, in this scripture? Jesus is the word, the eternal word of the Father incarnate, and the scriptures are uh, the word of God written. 
both a human and a divinely inspired work. So maybe this is helping us begin to get in just a little bit deeper to the scripture. Um, but what I want to show you is, as, as we meditate or as we think about this level of the Spirit, how this guides us a little deeper into one of the ancient ways of reading the Bible. Um, there are hints of it in the New Testament. There's actually examples of it in the New Testament, so it's a biblical way to read it. But it was picked up largely by the early church fathers, and we've kind of lost this in many ways. Um, but I want to show you, how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? How can we read, here's the word, um, in, a, in a typological sense? So typology is the actual way in which the early church interacted with much of the scriptures. Um, so let's take some examples. Ways in which we see Jesus. It, it's, it's a way of reading history, biblical history, theologically, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So here, I'm going to give you a couple examples. I hope this will be fun for you. Um, I'll, I always get pumped about this. Uh, Every time I engage uh, with this. So, uh, first, the Exodus. The Exodus story. You know the story. Um, and, and we could get into the Joseph narrative too. It's a great typological uh, kind of narrative. You can see Jesus all throughout. G Joseph as a figure which points to Jesus. Um, but here it is. So, Joseph goes down to Egypt, right? Saves his family from famine. A new Pharaoh comes. The people are enslaved for 400 years. God's people, Israel. And then God sends Moses to lead them out of slavery. So that's where, we're, where we'll start. Uh, Israel is enslaved. Moses, a great leader of the people sent by God, sets the people free. By leading them, there's first the Passover meal with all the imagery that points to Jesus in that. Uh, the lamb uh, without spot or blemish, whose blood over the doorpost, kind of in the shape of a cross, right? Allows the angel of death to pass over, uh, kind of pointing to Jesus, the cross, and whose blood washing us, sets us free from death. Then Moses leads the people out of slavery to the sea where we see the waters part and the people pass through on dry land and all their enemies, Pharaoh's armies which are pursuing them, are swallowed up in the water behind, which is actually an image of, in this way of reading, of baptism as Christians um, follow Christ, our leader, through the waters of baptism, what, being washed clean and also seeing our enemies defeated, not by our work, but by God's miraculous intervention. The people then wander through the wilderness, which is a picture and an image of our earthly life. During the Israelites' journey through the, the wilderness, they didn't have food. And so what did God cause to fall upon the ground new each morning, uh, falling like dew? A substance they called, what is it? It was uh, a bread, a flaky bread that fell down from heaven, the bread from heaven. Jesus then is... Uh, he, he claimed in John, this is one of the, I, I am the bread of life. Jesus is for us the daily bread and sustenance for which we pray 
in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is the answer to that. He is the daily gift of God to us. And then there's the whole motif of Moses uh, receiving the law and the Ten Commandments. And of course, Jesus, like we talked about in Matthew's Gospel, um, giving the law from atop the mountain. Uh, the people continue to wander um, through the wilderness, eventually come to the land of promise, um, the, the Jordan River. Moses, the giver of the law, can't make his way in because the law can't save you. The law can't get you there. It can only show you your need for salvation. Moses doesn't lead the people in. We talked about this when we used, uh, in my last video with you guys, talking about Jesus as Joshua, Yeshua, the one who leads us into the heavenly space, the promised land, because God saves us. God gets us there, not us. So you can begin to see all these little points of connection in the Exodus story, which the Christian church in the early days of rereading the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is says, wow, this tells our story. It was, it's a typological reading. The second one I'm just going to point out, I mean, the Old Testament is completely full of all of this. So uh, the Abraham and Isaac story where Abraham waits and waits and waits for a child, um, but he and Sarah don't have one until God comes and promises, and Sarah laughs, and so they name Isaac Laughter, right? And uh, he brings joy to them. He is the son for which they have been waiting. He's described as their beloved son many, many times, especially, I had to, in my ordination exam stuff, I had to do a, uh, I had to do some exegetical work with this with this passage, um, and so uh, there's the the uh, call that God gives to Abraham to take Isaac, his beloved, his only. It's emphasized, emphasized over and over. So you feel the pain of this to go and to sacrifice him as an offering to God, the promised one, the beloved, his only son is the one God asks him to give, and so Abraham and Isaac make this trek to Mount Moriah and Abraham takes the wood and lays it upon Isaac's back and he's trudging up the hill and he says, you know, where is the sacrifice, Father? Abraham says, God will provide. Make their way up. And then there's the, this tragic binding of Isaac. Abraham binds his son and lays him upon an altar which he has carried himself up the Isaac has carried himself up to the top of the mountain. And Abraham raises up the knife, and just as he's getting ready to bring it down to sacrifice his only beloved son is the language. It should sound familiar to anyone who's uh, familiar with the story of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, or um, the language of the the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, Jesus is on a mountain here. This is my beloved son. Um, So just before Abraham sacrifices his beloved son, an angel of the Lord speaks and says, Stop! And sure enough, God has provided a sacrifice. What is caught in, um, in the thicket? But a ram with his head caught in the briars. So how did, the old te- how did the early church read this passage? They said, wow, the beloved son of Abraham is actually the beloved son, Jesus, 
who is sacrificed, the only, the promised one is sacrificed for us. He carries the wood of his cross just like Isaac carried the wood of the altar up the mountain and Jesus struggles to do this until um, you know, one comes and helps him carry it the rest of the way. Jesus comes to the top and we're waiting as the beloved one is sacrificed, wondering, will God relent as he did for Abraham's son, but God does not relent for his own son at such great cost to himself. The son is offered up. Interestingly, with his head wrapped in a crown of thorns, the lamb sacrificed before the foundation of the world. You see how, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to begin a typological reading of the Old Testament, which brings us now to our passage for this evening, Adam. We'll talk about Adam. We, we can't cover everything, but we're just going to kind of get started with this. Jesus is the second Adam. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to, uh, oh, let's see here, Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 uh, through 14. So listen carefully and listen well. To God's word. Romans 5, 12 through 14. The, the, the title here, my, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, uh, which I especially appreciate as a kind of a word-for-word translation. The title here that has been inserted is Death in Adam, Life in Christ. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all people because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, who was the giver of the law, right? Even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, and here's the line, who was a type of the one who was to come. Typology, I wasn't just making that word up. It is in your Bible. Adam was a type of the one to come. So Paul is is, um, comparing Adam, the first man, with Jesus, the first man of, of the creation with with the old creation, with Jesus, the first man of the new creation. And now, he, even as he compares them, he also contrasts them because Adam uh, brought what? Adam brought sin and therefore death, says the passage, right? Adam brought sin and death into the world, which has now come to all of us because all of sin. Jesus, the second Adam, brought, what, righteousness into the world. Uh, Brought righteousness into the world. And through righteousness brought, not death, but life, eternal life, right? So they're both similar and different. Um, Adam brings sin and death. Jesus brings righteousness and life. Now, as a way to kind of get further into that, 
I want to share with you something uh, that is just amazing to me. Um, it's a teaching by Ephraim the Syrian. Uh, and I'm calling that Ephraim the Syrian and the tree atop the mountain. So I want to see, in the same way that we've looked at the Exodus story and have seen um, uh, types of our being set free from slavery to sin and Israel's being set free, the same way we've seen types of baptism in the way the Israelites pass through the water, in the same way we've seen types of communion uh, in the manna coming down from heaven, seen types of entrance into the kingdom by way of Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, and not the law, but, but through the grace of God given to us in Jesus, and Joshua's leading the people into the promised land, so too can we see types of, um, of Jesus' life and righteousness, which is brought to us in the same way that um, Adam kind of loses those things. Jesus retraces that and actually gives us more than we had in the beginning gives us something greater than we originally lost. So here it is, two pictures. And uh, Ephraim pictures the Garden of Eden as a mountain. Now you might say, I've never heard of that before, but a couple, I, I can't remember exactly where, one of the prophets says and describes Eden as a mountain. The early church did, but also uh, in, the, in the garden there are four rivers, right? And they flow down. Right? Because water flows down. So presumably, well, it's not just totally flat plot like you might see in your backyard or something. The garden here is a mountain. Uh, and if you don't trust either water flowing down or the prophet who speaks of this um, in a literal sense, well, maybe you can uh, follow along with this in a symbolic, typological sense. So, Eden's a garden, it's a mountain, and there's some trees in there. Now, how many trees? See if you kind of remember. Uh, of course, there's the tree of what? The knowledge of the good and evil. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which Adam and Eve, they're, they're told not to eat of it, and, that, and then they do, right? But there was also in the garden the tree of life, Right? And Ephraim pictures um, that tree is described in Genesis as being in the midst of the garden. If you look at a mountain from the top, the top of it is in the center, right? And so he imagines this, he places this uh, tree of life at the top, at the pinnacle of the garden. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you remember the story. God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They do. God's original intent was for them, by obedience, to also enter into perfection and receive uh, eternal life here. But he doesn't let them eat of this tree yet. In their disobedience, they lose access to that tree and are, well, the first thing they do is they run and hide, don't they? They recognize, knowing good and evil, that they are naked and they're ashamed. And so they run down here and cover themselves with what kind of leaves? The leaves of a fig tree, right? So we know there's at least, there's all kinds of trees in the garden, right? But here's Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves. When God returns, seeking them out in the cool of the day, he's used to walking with them, used to fellowship with them. He, he comes to them, uh, he says, what have you done? They tell him, and then he passes 
judgment upon their actions. Here's the consequence now. He cast them out of the garden, sets an angel to guard it. And the next part of that scripture in Genesis says that the ground brought forth thorns and thistles. So in this story, we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. Further out from the garden, we see the, the fig tree. And then outside the garden, we see thorns and thistles. All right? So what did Adam do? Adam, through his disobedience, brought sin and death into the world. And instead of coming here to the tree of life, they were cast out of the garden. Okay, there's Adam. Here's Jesus, the second Adam. What does Jesus, the second Adam, do? I'm going to show you another mountain. This one called Mount Calvary. Right? The mountain just outside of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. Ephraim, um, reading about the last week of Jesus' life, reminds us that just a few days before he was arrested, Jesus is walking there and he sees a fig tree. Do you remember this weird story? He sees a fig tree and he curses the, the fig tree and the leaves wither. Now Ephraim remembered that in Genesis there's a fig tree. And that this fig tree, the leaves of it were used to cover up the people because they were ashamed at their nakedness, ashamed at the broken relationship that they uh, now had kind of fallen out of with God. Jesus curses the fig tree. Ephraim said, oh, Jesus is cursing the fig tree. There are a couple of different interpretations, but one of them is that, well, the leaves of the fig tree are not going to be needed for very much longer. Isn't that incredible? Because Jesus is about to do something about Adam's sin. This will not be needed anymore. And so here you see the leaves of the fig tree uh, wilting. They're not going to be needed. You go a little further into the final week of Jesus' life, you'll remember he is betrayed, he's arrested, he's convicted falsely, uh, he is beaten. And, and whipped and scourged and mocked and stripped naked. And a crown of thorns is placed upon his thorns, thorns and thistles. Wait a minute, says Ephraim. I remember those. They were right outside the garden. They were the consequence of sin. Jesus takes those thorns and instead of wearing them as a curse, he kind of bears them as a curse, but soon they are about to become for him a crown. He wears them upon his head. He does something with the thorns. Jesus, Adam has come down the mountain. Jesus is going up. He ascends the mountain. He deals with the fig leaves. They don't need those anymore. Our relationship with God is about to be restored. The thorns that were the curse of the ground, now he wears upon his head. He ascends, do it, Mount Calvary, doing something, carrying this cross like Isaac going up Mount Moriah with uh, the wood of the altar upon his back. He carries his cross up to the top, dealing with the disobedience of Adam and Eve. In his obedience, he goes all the way. His obedient even to the point of death, says Philippians. And he comes here, and we see atop the mountain that the tree of life is actually a cross. 
And that through Christ's obedience, he has, we were cast out of paradise, and Jesus has now given us access to it once again. Not only paradise, but the tree of eternal life. He gives us what, not only what we had lost here, he gives us even more. He gives us the fullness of what God intends for us. Absolutely staggering. You can see how wise these old readers of the Bible were. Um, an incredible image and picture. I hope you can see that. We're kind of at an angle here. Uh, but maybe you have taken notes. Maybe you can retrace that. Um, so a couple ancient ways to read the Bible. Uh, the seeing Jesus in the whole text allows us also to see Jesus here in the, in the Genesis story as we consider Jesus as the second Adam. But you might say as we close, what, what practical good is this? And Paul would say, oh, <laughs> it's what I've been writing about in almost every single letter that I've sent to churches. Uh, let's take but one example. Here I'm going to turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 17, talking about the new life. Anytime in the, in the letters of Paul where he talks about the old man and the new man, you know what he's talking about? The old Adam and uh, the new Adam. You see Adam here uh, and then Jesus here, right? The old Adam, the old life is the way of Adam that brings sin and death. When he tells us to turn away from that, that's what he's saying. When he tells us to turn towards the new way, he's describing to us what has been opened up to us now in Jesus. And so here's just one example. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 25. Here's the old Adam and the new one. The old man and the new. Adam and Jesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, alienated from the life of God, um, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, the, the old Adam, and the Greek translation is literally man, the old man. Put off the old Adam, which brings sin and death into the world, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, spirit of your minds. Look, we're reading now in the Holy Spirit. Our lives are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. That belongs to your former manner of self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new man, who is, who, who is Jesus, created after the likeness of God. Adam was created in God's image and likeness. But, but Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. So anywhere in the scriptures that you hear an encouragement to put off the old you and take on the new, maybe you can think of the fall you've experienced down the mountain, but also the fact that Jesus has carried you back up and has given you the prize which we were always created for, eternal life and relationship with God. And that begins here and now. So I pray this teaching blesses you. I pray that you have enjoyed uh, hearing a little bit about Jesus as the second Adam. Uh, I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Bye-bye.